0: Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we always have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's word, and so we'll bow our heads together, and I will open in prayer after a few moments of silent prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be here tonight to study your word and that as we study your word, it enlightens us as to the realities of our existence here on this earth as your creatures. Because you are the one who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, you have the right to address how things are to uh, be conducted, how things operate on this planet. And as you have created man as a social creature, you have also instituted social institutions that must be followed in order to provide order and consistency, stability within our uh, societies, within our our nations, within our cultures, and that when we violate these laws living in our own invention of reality, then eventually uh, we end up having a collapse of those cultures and those societies. Now, fathers, we continue to study your word. We see this example in the affairs of Israel in the transition from Solomon to Rehoboam and the breakup of the kingdom of Israel into the northern and southern kingdom. And as we look at these, uh, what is covered in the scripture related to this, we see many important principles that we can apply to our own. Uh, our own history, our own situation, our own views on politics. And we pray that as we study these things, you would uh, particularly give us insight and application in relation to current events. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in 1 Kings chapter 12, and you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, But I want to just bring you sort of up-to-date, review a little bit about what we've been covering by way of introduction to 1 Kings chapter 12. In 1 Kings chapter 12, there is a transition that takes place from the, uh, king, kingdom in Israel under Solomon, where you have a united kingdom of the 12 tribes of Israel, to a breakup that occurs as part of God's discipline on the nation, uh, for the idolatry of the nation under Solomon. Solomon was the king and the leader but the people were also complicit in the idolatry. It's not just that Solomon had given himself over to idolatry, but the people had as well. And so, uh, saw, saw that this is an act of tyranny. I'm, excuse me, an act of of treason against God, who has established himself as the ultimate king over Israel. And under the Mosaic Law, the first of the ten Commandments is, "Thou shalt have no other God before me, so by worshiping other gods and that these other gods were the gods of the king of the uh, countries, the kingdoms surrounding Israel, it was uh, the the religion, the religious shift to idolatry was a political statement Now that happens under a form of government called a the theocracy now no, There are no, uh, in the Western world, there are no theocracies other than perhaps in the Vatican. There's uh, theocracies in Iraq, I mean, excuse me, Iran, and uh, perhaps some other uh, Islamic countries seek to have a theocratic type of government under Sharia law and under Islam. But in the West, you don't have that. And even though you have a number of people who seem to think that evangelicals, the religious right, is attempting to establish a theocracy in this country. This is ju- this shows um, just that they don't understand uh, evangelicalism or many of these people uh, at all. I mean, I know many of these people have met them, have heard them speak, and the idea that Jerry Falwell or Tim LaHaye or any number of other leaders in the so-called religious right wanting to establish a theocracy is just absolute absurdity. Uh, they would no more want to impose uh, from a national legislative means their religious convictions as religious convictions on the nation than anybody else. Now, they may have certain uh, moral convictions that come out of Scripture that they think are right. But you can't, as a Christian, you can't park your Christianity over here and then uh, go vote, go get involved in the political process as if your understanding of God's Word and what God says has nothing to do with the everyday affairs of life. And so I raised a question that is an important question at the beginning of this little introduction, uh, two lessons back, should religion be divorced from politics? And we can address that question, I think, from two perspectives. One is from the perspective of the voter, and a second would be from the perspective of government. From the perspective of the voter, you cannot divorce religion from politics, Senator Kennedy's comments to the contrary. You may remember several years ago, he said that when it comes to voting, he doesn't let his Roman Catholic beliefs affect his, uh, leg- his votes in Congress. Well, I certainly believe that. But that's because he really doesn't believe the tenets of what he, of the religion he says he believes. Now, if someone has it religious convictions, whether they're Islamic or Mormon or whether they're Hindu or Buddhist, whatever their religious framework is, if they don't allow that to address the everyday issues and decisions of life, then it has no value for them. It's just a facade. And this is often what you find in in history. We see this to some degree, or we will see it when we look at Rehoboam, that there is not a deep uh, conviction of the truth of God's Word in contrast to the kind of deep conviction Solomon had especially at the beginning of uh, the beginning of his reign so from the perspective of the individual every value Judge, whenever you say something is right or something is wrong uh, we look at uh, for example right now we've just had this situation with AIG and some of the other financial institutions and now the uh president, the head of the Federal Reserve Bank, the president have uh, put forth this plan for this huge bailout in excess of a trillion dollars. And so when you hear people discuss this, uh, you will hear people discuss it in terms of this is right or this is wrong. Okay, if it's right or wrong and you're making those kind of value judgments, that brings to the table an ethical system, a moral system. Uh, you have some basis for saying why this is right or why this is wrong. Now, is that informed by a a view of divine institutions coming out of the Scripture? Or is that personal preference or is that just motivated by one's desire to avoid a recession or depression or difficult or hard times, uh, economically or personally because you don't want to, uh, really lose, uh, everything that you've set, uh, you've invested in certain companies. So what, what's the value system? And there's always a value system and a value system as we know is e- that either comes out of the scripture that's what makes it biblical, by the way. You'll have people say, "Well, I don't think that's very biblical," and some people have funny ideas of what makes something biblical or not. It's biblical because you 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 develop a groundwork, a foundation of thought from the scriptures, and then you build from that. That's how it, it comes out of the Bible, not just something that you think is merely consistent or compatible. With Christianity, because often once you push that kind of a view to its ultimate end, it, it probably isn't compatible. It probably, it, because it doesn't come out of the scripture, it just has certain uh, parallels or certain similarities. So whenever you talk about values, you're, you're bringing to the table an ethical system some sort of moral system. And that's either going to have its ultimate source in God and his revelation, or it's going to have its source in human reason or human experience, pragmatism, empiricism, um, what, what have you. So it ultimately comes down to that chart that I've used many times on how do you know what you know? What's your ultimate, what's your ultimate authority? So, there really is no neutrality in human thought. Human, All human thought that involves any sort wow. of value judgment, any sort of ethical decision, always brings to the table some sort of view of ultimate reality. Is it personal or is it impersonal? Does that, uh, if it's personal, does that personal ultimate reality uh, communicate with man, or is that ultimate personality non-communicative, something like a deistic view uh, of God that was popular at the early stage of the Enlightenment? So you, you think about it in these terms, you realize that for a Christian to come to a decision about who to vote for in an election means that you have to analyze these particular leaders in a lot of different ways, and none of them are going to be perfect. Uh, in fact, some are going to be uh, a whole lot less perfect than others, and sometimes the choice is simply between that which is worse and that which is just a little bit, uh, just a little bit better. But it's neither of, uh, neither of the choices may be, uh, r- truly, uh, consistent or truly in line with a biblical a biblical viewpoint. So we, often you just can't say with, you know, absolutes on certain things in those areas. People have to make up their own decisions. It's between them and the Lord. So you stop and you look at these various things that God has laid out. And I pointed these out in terms of the divine institutions. The first three divine institutions, individual responsibility. Now that plays a role in this whole Debacle with these financial institutions because there are many people who made decisions on loans, on uh, giving people loans, encouraging people to take out loans that were uh, extremely risky and people who had no business uh getting into mortgages got into mortgages there were uh there was a lot of greed involved uh, at some level because people decided that well everybody else is doing it so I'm going to do it it has its roots early on in the ni- early 90s uh under the Clinton administration but it's you, you can't just dump all the responsibility on democrats because there's a lot of liberal republicans as well and they all uh, worked together, validated this, and it sort of snowballed from the early 90s up to the present. Now, I understand that there have been, uh, there were various attempts by the current administration to try to stifle this and to to introduce some level of of uh, accountability, but that the Congress just, you know, our do-nothing Congress just didn't allow that. And I'm not, in, you know, I've not spent a lot of time studying all these issues, so I don't know. Uh, where all the blame goes. But the issue that we have to address is the issue of individual responsibility. That When people make decisions and they turn out to be bad decisions, then is it right for others to come in and bail them out and absolve them of any responsibility and accountability just because it might hurt a lot of other people. And to what degree do you do that? And so whenever the government's always coming in and pu- putting a very high safety net under people so they don't really uh, reap the consequences of their irresponsible and, in fact, bad or maybe even criminal decisions, then that is a guarantee of, you know, eventual failure to the degree that you limit uh, f- failure, you're going to also limit success. And when the government is constantly coming in to provide the solution, that is just a form of socialism. And as uh, I saw uh, one uh, uh, <clears throat> liberal uh, commentator being interviewed the other day, and he said, you know, this is really interesting because the Republicans have been challenging the Democratic uh, candidate for president, Saying that, uh, one of the biggest flaws that he has is he's a socialist. Well, if bailing out AIG and these other, uh, companies with this trillion dollar package isn't socialism, what well, is? So the, the, the Republicans have just given up one of their primary objections to, uh, the Democratic candidate for, for president. And there's a, a lot of truth to that. And it boils down to violations of this fundamental principle, this divine institution of individual responsibility. And then you have marriage. And, of course, marriage is under tremendous attack today uh, by the um, Supreme Court of California, as well as others of uh, the Supreme Court of California, validating uh, ma- uh, that, that marriage can be between uh, people of the same sex, and that um, uh, you know, on the marriage licenses, that, that you, it's no longer uh, acceptable, legal, to identify them as husband and wife. In fact, it's not allowed to file if the uh, husband and wife scratch out, party the first part and party the second part and put in husband and wife, and that's not going to be accepted. So it's an attack on marriage, which ultimately is an attack on family. All of these things are... Um, are falling apart. What we see in Western civilization as a whole and in the United States specifically is a systemic breakdown because we've gone for, I think, 150 years eroding these divine institutions. And now what we're seeing is in the gradual deterioration, it just snowballs and it's getting faster and faster as you see society and culture, everything's just going to uh, pull apart. So these three divine institutions, individual responsibility, marriage, and family are all established before the fall. Then after the judgment of the Noahic flood, you have the establishment of human government and then subsequently the establishment of national uh, identities, national distinctions, as we saw in Acts seventeen twenty-six. this is from God. So government in principle, human government in principle, and nations, in principle, are established by God. But as we saw also, the, one of the first attacks on these occurred just after the Noahic flood in the incident related to the Tower of Babel, a perversion of both government and, and then uh, God used that to establish nations but you have the perversion of the fourth divine institution by Nimrod, and what he does is he sets himself up as an antagonist to God, so there is a religious uh, structure and framework to the Tower of Babel. They are shaking their fist at God. They're going to build this tower to protect them against any future divine judgments by by flood. They're going to build it high enough so the floodwaters uh, can't destroy them. So that's a perversion of the uh, human government. Because of man's sinfulness and his attacks against God, there is always going to be perversion of, the, of human government. And you see the development of the concept of kingdom in the scriptures, the kingdom of man. The first time you have the mention of kingdom is the kingdom of Nimrod there in Genesis chapter 11. And what God shows throughout the Old Testament history It's not as major, or not as large a part of the New Testament, but it's there in Revelation, is that human government will always fail. Human government is not the solution. Don't get caught up in your uh, fervor, your political fervor, over the next uh, five or six weeks, that whoever you're voting for is the answer to our problems. The political solution is no solution, and cursed is the man who trusts in man. And that will not provide us with a solution. And what God is showing, and specifically when you get into the theocratic kingdom of Israel, is that God is showing is that no human being can truly provide security and stability in the political realm. They're all failures. Ultimately, this is going to point to the future, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who, because he is the God-man is the only true human, and he's also truly divine, but he's the only true human without sin who can establish a truly righteous government. And so God is demonstrating in history that human governments will all fail because they are all run by human beings who have sin natures and they will never achieve the kind of stability that they offer. And so we will always see uh, trends in nations and empires, to promote political solutions that mirror the messianic claims of Christ. And I think it's really interesting that we're seeing so many people talking about uh, the Democratic candidate, uh, Mr. Obama, in these messianic terms. That's scary. That's the kind of thing, I'm not saying he's the Antichrist, but that is exactly the kind of thing that is going to be, uh, characteristic of the rise of the Antichrist, but we won't be here. We will all be, uh, raptured before that, that happens. So I pointed out that the first key passage related to government in the Old Testament has to do with Genesis uh, 9 and Genesis 11, that those two divine institutions. The second key passage then is found in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20, which Establishes the fact for Israel that the king is under the law. The king is not the law. The ultimate, the the buck doesn't stop with the king, the buck stops with God, and the king is under the authority of God. This was picked up by Samuel Rutherford, who was a famous uh, Scottish uh, Presbyterian theologian, a member of the Westminster Assembly who meditated on Deuteronomy 17 and then wrote a very significant tract during the 17th century called Lex Rex, The Law is King. From there, I, we went to 1 Samuel chapter 8, and beginning in verse 10, uh, Samuel warns, Samuel brings the warning from God to the people as they want to have a king like all the other nations. He warns them that when you get centralized power, it tends to increase... And the more power that accrues to government, the less freedom and liberty there is to people and One of the things that is emphasized there is that the king will put levies not only in terms of uh, monetary taxes upon the people, but he will also take from their sons and daughters a uh, sort of a draft into the military but also into government service, and uh, so there will be and this will come to come to fruition. With Solomon, because Solomon is going to be bringing a number of uh, uh, the term is forced laborers. Uh, they're they're conscripted laborers from the different tribes in Israel. And as he puts these uh, labor levies, as it were, on the on the on the tribes, uh, it becomes v- extremely uh, burdensome burdensome to them. It's not just a matter of, fin- of money and taxation, but also he's taking from their uh, labor resources from the labor pool to get them to work for him and his uh, building programs, as opposed to being able to produce for the uh, individual tribes. And so he's taxing not only the uh, end result, but he's also taxing the means of production, which is the people, uh, the people themselves. I found an interesting correlation from that this last week when uh, various Pundits were trying to make an issue out of uh, John McCain's statement that the fundamentals of the economy are still good. And so everybody started to say, well, how can they say the fundamentals are good when you keep having these collapses? And he said, well, the fundamentals are the American people. That's the labor force, their productivity. And that's the same thing that we're seeing and uh, same kind of thing that we're seeing here in, in 1 Samuel is that as Solomon during the latter years continued to try to impress people with the grandeur of his building projects, he's conscripting more and more laborers from the tribe so that he is virtually taking away their means of production by bringing the uh, men into uh, Jerusalem and Judah in order to carry out these building projects. So, one thing that comes out, one principle that comes out of uh, 1 Samuel 8 is that the Bible is against big government, centralized government, and against excessive taxation. Because, first of all, big government is a violation of divine institution number four. And the basics that the Bible gives on government, the role of government is to protect the nation from external enemies, which attacks from those who are opposed to the nation and from internal enemies in terms of criminality. And there is limited a limited role of government. It is to adjudicate in criminal, criminal cases, adjudicate in certain uh, disagreements, property disagreements. There's a recognition of private ownership of property. Property is not taxed under the Mosaic Law, which shows that, that the Bible recognizes the validity of the accumulation of personal wealth. And what we see is, today is an attack on personal wealth, that those who accumulate personal wealth should be penalized through uh, higher taxes. So God has is, God is showed in the Scripture that the, the Bible is against big government, and it's against excessive taxation. The more money that the government takes out of the pockets of people who have earned it, the less freedom and liberty they have. That's why the founding fathers of this nation uh, rebelled against the king of England because of uh, the, the onerous taxation, which compared to today was hardly anything. It shows how far we have uh, we have fallen. So. Um, the big government's a violation of divine institution number four, excessive, uh, excessive taxation is a violation of divine institution number one, personal responsibility, and that puts incredible pressure on divine institution number two and divine institution number three. In the f- 1950s, if you were a couple with the husband working and the man, and the woman at home as the mom and two kids, you had virtually no income taxes. And the, the lifestyle that that man could produce, the income he could produce with 40 hours of work a week, uh, was, was tremendous. I mean, they had tremendous affluence because they weren't taxed. And that was a pro-family taxation. By the 1970s, you get more and more of an increased tax rate on families. That's anti-family taxation. And uh, one of the things I've noticed in the current debates uh, between the presidential candidates is about who's going to raise more taxes on people. and uh, one candidate says that he's going to uh, reduce the taxes on everybody more than the other candidate except for the top uh, 1%. The other candidate's going to uh, not have as onerous a tax taxes on the upper uh, upper levels what they're talking about is income tax but you never hear anybody come out and talk about the fact that that it, the, the tax proposal especially from the on the democrat side that the ta- that his tax proposal includes uh increasing um, uh ta- inheritance taxes and, and increases capital gains tax and numerous other taxes which in effect uh increase the tax load on the middle class as opposed to his claim that he's taking away because people are only looking at that one aspect of his uh, his income tax proposal, not how the other aspects are working together. And so whenever you see, just follow the money, whenever you see uh, less of your money realized at the end of the month, then you've got less freedom, and that's a violation of, a divine institution number one, and when the worker realizes, the, the husband, the father, realizes less income, then now the mom has to go to work because somehow they have to be able to pay all the bills and put the kids to, through college or whatever they're going to do, and they have to, of course, buy them all the computer games and everything else that you have to have today, maintain that level of uh, affluence, and the end result is marriages fall apart too much pressure on them families fall apart and so the tax pressure then is a is a covert assault on both marriage and on family and so this erodes the cohesiveness of any particular uh, any particular culture Now, the political solution, as I said, is is demonstrating Scripture that it is no solution because the ultimate solution has to do with the relationship uh, with God. And Christianity has flourished in many different uh, economic and political systems. In fact, a case can be made that under some of the worst tyrannies in history, the church has grown phenomenally as it did in the early church under uh, Nero when Nero was uh, the emperor, the church grew in a tremendous, uh, tremendous way. Now, as we lo- analyze the political process, which is part of the whole social structure of mankind, we have to realize that the heart of the political process are people. And people are all totally depraved, as Scripture says. And if it's not for the truth of Bible doctrine, which emphasizes personal responsibility, the tendency for human beings is to always shift responsibility to someone else. And in governmental settings today in the the modern world, that fits within a model uh, known as socialism, the idea that government controls the uh, means of production and controls and redistributes the wealth. This destroys initiative, it destroys uh, the desire to accumulate wealth and to produce and to go forward and many uh, many other things. But at the heart of this whole thing is the people, and the leaders that a nation gets come out of the same cultural morass of everybody else so that we tend to get the leaders that we deserve because they come out of the same uh, pot that the rest of us are in. And we've seen that, uh, unfortunately, too much in terms of uh, recent, or many recent leaders. And I'm not talking about just at the presidential or executive level, but also at uh, judicial level, at uh, legislative level. We have people today who just don't understand absolutes that are not interested in long-term, objective solutions, and they're they're too personally involved and uh, and the solutions that they're setting forth and so that their decision making is corrupt this is the same kind of thing that you see in the bible during the period known as the period of the judges when everyone was doing right uh everyone w- was doing what was right in their own eyes so that ultimately whatever was best for me is uh what we wanted uh how they made a decision in terms of government in terms of of life And the result was that it completely, almost completely destroyed Israel. They just fragmented into basically 12 tribes. Each one was up to his own. Every now and then they would become so disciplined by foreign powers that God would bring a deliverer. But as we've studied in Judges, with each successive deliverer, the situation got worse until by the end of the period of the Judges, at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, the nation of Israel isn't living or operating or thinking any differently from the Canaanites that they had supplanted because they had gotten completely away from God. And they had leaders that typified the the nation, leaders like Jephthah, leaders like Samson, while some of these men uh, followed God and executed God's plan at key moments. Much of what they did uh, wasn't, and much of their lives were no different from the Uh, pagan Canaanites around them. And then you get into the early part of Judges, you see the, the, the corpulent, uh, Eli, who's the high priest, corpulent and corrupt, and his two sons are even worse. And even Samuel's two sons, uh, are, are very bad. And that's what gave rise to the situation in 1 Samuel 8 when, uh, the people came to Samuel wanting to have a king like all the other, all the other nations. So those are some of the key concepts we've looked at in uh, these previous chapters. Now we come to 1 Kings chapter 12, and we see an emphasis on the character of the leader and how important the character of the leader is. And we can see a contrast between Solomon's son Rehoboam, who will succeed him on the throne, and Solomon. Solomon, we're told, at the end of chapter 11 uh, went to be with the Lord, the period that, verse 42, the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Now we'll find out that when Rehoboam comes to the throne, he's 41, which means he was born a year before Solomon became king. And he has grown up during the first 20 to 25 years of his life. He experienced all of the blessing from God that Solomon Uh, experience because of his devotion to the Lord. But for the last 10 to 15 years, he has seen Solomon uh, involved up to his neck in uh, idolatrous worship and paganism. And as I pointed out, even though the text doesn't say this, in light of God's promise of discipline on the nation, they would have gone through economic collapse during these last few years. This is why I believe uh, Solomon's Taxation is now so onerous. When we looked at, at 1 Samuel 10, I mean 1 Kings 10, we saw the grandeur of Solomon's empire because of God's blessing. Uh, he, he, there's tremendous trade. Their ships uh, in, in league with the Phoenicians are sailing throughout the whole world. Uh, trade uh, routes uh, from all over the world are going through Israel. And as a result of this, Solomon is accumulating, and the kingdom is accumulating tremendous wealth. It's not through taxation. He didn't build this kingdom on the backs of the people. God blessed him, and the nation was prosperous because his heart was totally devoted to the Lord. But when his heart turned away from God, and he began to do evil in the sight of the Lord, which is defined in context as open idolatry, when he began to get involved in idolatry, which is treason against God, then God brought him under discipline. Now to maintain the facade of affluence, and in order to uh, keep that veneer up, it looks like everything's going good, now he's going to maintain his affluence on the backs of the people. So he's increasing the... Uh, load that he's putting on the people in terms of financial taxation as well as the demands for more and more laborers because he has to keep up the facade that God is still blessing them when in fact God is no longer blessing them and has announced the judgment on the nation, uh, through, uh, uh, through, through the prophets, through his own, God's own uh, revelation earlier in chapter 11 to, uh Solomon and then uh through uh the prophet to Abijah to uh or Ahijah rather to uh uh Jeroboam, who is one of the key leaders in the, the in the labor force from the tribes of the north. So that gives us uh something of the background. Now let's just do a little character comparison of what we know of Solomon and Rehoboam. First of all, Rehoboam is much older when he comes to the throne than Solomon was. Solomon was probably somewhere near the age of twenty; he's young. Now, that's important to note because youthfulness and the naivety and inexperience of, you, the, of the youth of the young is uh, a theme within this particular uh, particular chapter. Solomon is young, but Rehoboam is is older. He's 41 when he comes to the throne. He is not far from the age that Solomon uh, was at when Solomon began to get away from the Lord. So Rehoboam is older, and he should be wiser. He should have more experience, but he doesn't. He is arrogant. He is self-centered. He makes, as a result, foolish decisions. That comes because he is not oriented to God. His heart is not for the Lord at this point. We see that, and I'll cover that in just a minute. Second thing we see in terms of comparison is, and contrast is that Solomon listened to the counsel of his father. If you remember back when we started our study of 1 Kings, after there was the Adonijah conspiracy to usurp the throne, to take the uh, kingdom away from Solomon in the, in the uh, transfer of power from David to Solomon, Uh, After that occurred, David had a heart-to-heart with Solomon at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 2 where he outlined to Solomon what his uh, agenda should be once David died in terms of dealing with his enemies. He was to uh, make sure that Joab was finally executed for all of his crimes. He was to make sure that uh, some of the others who had turned against him were uh, dealt with uh, in terms of grace, but to watch them and to be careful. And he uh, listened uh, to them. He dealt wisely and graciously with Shemai, uh, with Ab- uh, Abiathar, the, pri- the priest. He dismissed him from the priesthood, but he didn't execute him, which was his right. Uh, he dealt with Adonijah in grace and gave him another chance. Uh, which he, which Adonijah blew, and he ended up having to execute him. He executed Joab for his previous uh, crimes uh, and murders. He dealt favorably with Barzillai, the Gileadite, who had treated uh, David quite well when David fled uh, during the Absalom re- revolt. We saw Solomon that uh, when Adonijah wanted to uh, uh, sleep with or take Abishag as his wife, he, he, and, and Adonijah went to Bathsheba. Bathsheba went to Solomon, and Solomon listened to his mother. He is teachable. He has humility. He recognizes his own limitations. He has objectivity. And above all, and by the time we get to 1 Kings 3 7, we see that he's humble toward God. Uh, he, 1 Kings 3 7 says that, that he walked in all the ways of God, all the ordinances of God, the laws of God. And he was obedient to God in everything except that he didn't destroy the uh, the high places. But God gives him, uh, if not an A+, plus, he gives him an, at least a solid A in terms of his uh, walk with the Lord. He shows grace orientation, humility. He's teachable. And when God says, ask me anything you want and I'll give it to you, rather than asking for money or power or the destruction of his enemies or military might, he asks God for wisdom skill at leading his people so we see that there is a heart for leadership there and he understands that leadership is servanthood now that's a key element because uh, Rehoboam is going to reject that the older wiser men who had counseled Solomon uh, will come to him when he asks for their advice they say you need to be a servant and he rejects that Solomon had a, he understood that at the heart of leadership is that a, a, a king is serving God and serving his people. Uh, Solomon's priorities showed that he, his focus was on God. He wanted to build the house for God, the temple in Jerusalem. His prayer of dedication, which we studied, showed that his, he had a profound understanding of the covenants and a profound understanding of the Mosaic law, and the way he was able to weave all of those elements into his uh, prayer of dedication shows that this was deeply embedded uh, within his soul. In contrast, Rehoboam shows arrogance. He doesn't listen to the wise advice of elders. He rejects that. For the foolish advice of the young men, it's interesting. Uh, you you miss this in the English, but when he come, you read through chapter twelve, and you get down to uh, where, he get, where verse eight, where he rejects the advice which the elders had given him, and he consulted the young men. Okay, now what the Hebrew says is he consulted the yeladim. Now yeladim is Hebrew for children. See the writer is being a little sarcastic there these are just naive children. They have no experience, they have no background. they are just his cronies, and they 're no better than going to uh simple minded children with no experience just uh, and getting their advice so uh the The language that's used there really points out the thinking of the author and clues us into uh, how we should be thinking about these. Uh, these particular things so he he um, rehoboam listens to the young men he rejects the elders he, there's no mention of his spiritual life until you get down into uh realization uh, later on he has to establish uh the kingdom there uh in in the southern kingdom and it's not even mentioned here in uh first kings it's really emphasized over in second King chronicles uh, chapter 11, he is not oriented to the Mosaic law. He doesn't study the law. He doesn't have a heart from God. Later, he will show a, some humility when he gathers the people together. He gets angry. The nation splitting apart. He goes back. He raises an army of 180,000 and a, a prophet. We only see this one time named uh, Shemmai comes out and tells him to God. This is turn of events is from God. Shemiah says, and uh so he stands down. That's the only time he showed any humility uh, whatsoever. He also, uh, he will build up, we'll see, the defenses and fortifications in the southern kingdom. So he has a strong building program, uh, which he would have inherited from, from his father. We see that he obeyed the Lord for three years, and then he just introduces idolatry and God's final assessment of his reign as he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So there is a a tremendous number of lessons we can see in this contrast of character that what makes the difference between Solomon as a great king and Rehoboam as a poor king is the spiritual factor. And when you apply that to today, that doesn't mean that you want to go out and find somebody who is a, uh, a professing Christian to be president. I, I, I thought it's so silly that when it comes to evaluating leaders, we want to find out if they're a Christian, if they've expressed faith in Christ. As far as I, I, I believe Richard Nixon was a believer, I, I'm going to give Gerald Ford the benefit of the doubt, uh, Jimmy Carter, and, you know, my personal opinion is I'm. I hope he's in another part of heaven. Um, Ronald Reagan w- was a believer. Uh, Bill Clinton, I believe, was a believer. All evidence that um, he went to First Baptist Church in Little Rock. The pastor there affirmed that he believed that he was a believer. Our current president is a believer. You know, if if. We've had Christians for 30 years and they've brought us this mess. Why do we want to have a Christian in, as a president? That's not the issue of their eternal destiny doesn't have anything to do with their wisdom or skill at leading a nation. They have no doctrine. You know, I'd almost rather have a have a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness that's in there because, you know, legalism at least seems to work for some people and they understand something about responsibility and consequences. I'm just being facetious. I always remember somebody I worked for when I was in Dallas, when I was in seminary. Said, you know, whenever I need work done on my house, I always hire a Jehovah's Witness because they're working their way to heaven. So they if they don't do a good job; it has eternal consequences. There's a lot of truth to that. So character character matters, and uh, but it really does matter. It's not just a matter of whether the person's a believer and their eternal destiny is heaven. But what matters is, have they really understood the principles of Scripture? And unfortunately, the pro- the people that we have that have been in high office, that are Christians, are going to have an eternal destiny in heaven, are pathetically ignorant about Scripture. This president we have now may surprise the uh, media. This man is not an evangelical. He is a Methodist. I'm sorry if I offend anybody because of that. But Methodist, the doctrine of the United Methodist Church, is not an evangelical doctrinal statement. He doesn't understand the first thing about the Bible. Anybody who thinks that Islam is a religion of peace is a fool. And when we elect uh, politicians who are operating on that kind of a fallacious view of reality, then we are going to reap horrendous consequences from that. And the reason that that you have people who come to those kind of conclusions is because they don't have any doctrine to begin with, number one, and they don't understand the serious consequences that false religious beliefs have in national policies, especially when it comes to Islamic countries. So what we see in 1 Kings 12 and following with Rehoboam are the consequences that come upon any nation when they have a... An arrogant, uh, leader and the foolishness that comes from that. So let's just begin working our way through 1 Kings chapter 12 because this shows us the, the issues of related to leadership and the individual involved. A number of important principles are pulled out of 1 Kings 12, 1 through twenty-four, which are often thought to be the main idea here, such as listening to the elders instead of the young men, and some other things. But that's not the point. The main point that the the writer of First Kings is trying to make, he is trying to show, as part of his broad argument through First and Second Kings, is that is based on the Mosaic Law. God blesses the nation that is in obedience to him and is keeping the contract, the covenant that God made within the Mosaic law, and that God will bring judgment on the nation that disobeys him, and the most egregious form of disobedience is idolatry. And so all of this goes back, as I pointed out again and again, to our understanding of Deuteronomy and the Mosaic law. So there are lessons that we'll see here related to overbearing government, large government, and e- uh, egregious taxation. We'll also see the lessons related to listening to the wise, humility, uh, grace, orientation, uh, rather than listening to arrogant, foolish, inexperienced uh, youths. And there are many lessons also related to uh, rebelliousness and just uh, listening to, a th- recognizing the principle of authority. But the fundamental lesson through all of this is related to God's discipline on Israel for the sin of idolatry and for their treasonous actions in idolatry. Now the contrast that we see, as I pointed out earlier, the key, one of the key contrasts between Solomon and Rehoboam has to do with wisdom. And so at the beginning, I just want to go look at it, hit a couple of passages very quickly. The key to wisdom. Solomon is wise. Rehoboam is will say is foolish. Proverbs one seven says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The starting point is this fear, this respect for God as the sovereign ruler of his creation. That's what the fear of the Lord really means. It's it's it is a fearfulness, but it is also a respect. It is that recognition that if I disobey God, he will lower the boom. It's like uh, when I was a kid, when my mother would say, well, we'll just wait till your father comes home and he'll deal with this. Well, that's when you became fearful of your father and you knew that you weren't going to get away with anything. That's the idea here. Once you have that respect for God's authority, that's when you really begin to learn and that is the basis for wisdom. In contrast, fools despise wisdom and instruction. We'll see that with Rehoboam. He despises the wisdom and the instruction that comes from the elders. So the writer is showing, going to work out these these particular uh, contrasts. Another key passage to look at would be Psalm 111.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This principle is stated again and again in Scripture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do... His commandments, that's the idea that James has of practicing what you learn from the Word of God. Uh, it's, it, those who hear should be doers, i.e. practicers, implementers of what they learn, not just taking notes, not just being intellectually stimulated, but learning that, coming to Bible class, learning that you should think and act a certain way and then uh, implementing that. So a good understanding of all those who do his commandments, his praise endures forever. Other passages like Proverbs 813, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So it is a there is an ethical aspect to wisdom. It is not the abstract concept of philosophizing that comes out of a Greco Roman background, but it is an ethical skill that develops within the context of Jewish thought. For wisdom in Jewish thought is not uh, abstract reasoning, but it is skill at living. That same word that is used for wisdom, the word chokhmah, In Hebrew is the word that is used of the skill that God gave the craftsmen, the jewelers, the carpenters who built the tabernacle. It is a, a the ability to take raw materials and to produce something of beauty and of value. And so we take the raw materials of Bible doctrine, and through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, we apply them in our life, and it produces a spiritual life, a character that has uh, value and beauty in terms of eternal absolutes. So the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. It has an ethical aspect to it, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Proverbs 9:10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom the beginning of skill and the knowledge of the holy one is understanding so it is not uh, a college education it's not a bachelor's degree master's degree phd it is a relationship to god which is the real key to to knowledge and that comes from His Word. Psalm 19, uh, 7 and following from verses 7 to 10 is a tremendous meditation on the value of God's Word. The law of the Lord is perfect restoring the soul. Now, the phrase there that's used for restoring the soul, the word there for restore, is the same word that we saw Sunday morning in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Only the word of God has the ability to restore our soul, to give us true soul health. We come uh, out of the womb because of the sin nature. We are born with a distorted, warped soul and a warped mind. But only the Word of God can uh, restore it. The law of the Lord is perfect for storing the soul. I want you to notice the different words used as synonyms for God's Word. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, the word simple there in English isn't really a good uh, rendition of the Hebrew. The Hebrew word there for simple is the youthful, the inexperienced, or the naive. That's Rehoboam. Even though he's 41, he's leaning upon the Yeladim, the young men, his cronies, and they are inexperienced, they are naive because they don't have wisdom Wisdom comes only from God's word. Solomon had wisdom because of his devotion uh to the Lord. And he you only get that from the from studying the word. Verse uh Psalm 19:8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So it brings joy in the midst of negative circumstances. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It brings enlightenment so that we truly understand the issues in any given uh, set of circumstances. Uh, Psalm 19.9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And then the value, the priority, verse 10, they are more desirable than gold. Yea, than much fine gold. There's nothing you can invest your life in that's more valuable than the study of God's Word. And it is uh, more of uh, value, more uh, pleasant to us. It is sweeter than the honey and the drippings and the honeycomb. In contrast to this, twice in the Psalms, in Psalm fourteen one and in Psalm 53, 1, we have the statement, "...the fool has said in his heart, there is no God." Now, this isn't talking about a Madeline Murray O'Hare or some overt atheist. This is talking about the person who, in terms of their inner thought life, how they approach life, they are functional atheists. And I would venture to say 90% of people who go to a Christian church on Sunday morning are functional atheists because they don't live as if God has actually spoken to every area of their life. So they they live as if there is no God, but there is a God. So they are foolish because they don't have the fear of the Lord. And so the fool is not the unbeliever. The fool is the person who is living in terms of his inner uh, thought life, his inner view of reality, his human viewpoint thinking is based on non-biblical assumptions. Proverbs 12.15 says, "The "...the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel." Rehoboam does not listen to counsel. You all know people who don't listen to wise counsel given from those who have gone through these experiences. They seem to always have to learn things on their own terms the hard way. And so this is a biblical fool. They are living as if there is no God. Uh, Proverbs fourteen sixteen: the wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. So this fits the categorization of Rehoboam. He is foolish. He's arrogant. He's careless. He's naive. He's simple. He's rejected uh God's word, uh, God's guidance. Proverbs fifteen five: A fool rejects his father's discipline. Now Solomon had guided Rehoboam as a young man, but now he rejects his teaching of his father in his early years, and he's rejecting the guidance of his father's counseling. In contrast, the wise person is the one who regards reproof, for this is sensible." And then just to wrap up this introduction, Romans 1.21 says that even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile or empty in their speculations, and their foolish heart was dark, and professing to be wise, they became fools. See, man operating apart from God, having rejected the witness of God, they exchanged the glory of God for the worship of the creature, and they build their thought systems on human viewpoint foundations. And the result is they will make bad decisions. And we see that. That's at the root of these financial crises, is that people who think they can get away with everything, they can just violate basic fundamentals of economic law because they think that they are basically antinomian. And we have produced a culture of antinomians. And socialism comes along and says, well, government will clean up your mess, and you don't really have to be accountable for it. And there are, there really aren't any consequences for bad decisions. Now, there are consequences for bad decisions, as we see with Solomon. The nation is going to be d- divided, and there will be consequences for Rehoboam's bad decisions, and we'll get into that in detail uh, next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to get into your word, to be encouraged by it, to have a perspective on politics and leaders that comes out from a a history of Israel that shows that these issues that we face today and that we see in our own uh, country, and our own culture, are not new, but they have been around as as long as man has been around. And as, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, And as those who have the enlightenment from your word, we're able to understand these things with a much better perspective. And we can have confidence that even if all of this falls down around us, that you are the one who protects us and provides for us. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.